Well, welcome back. We have been in a series here at Long Hill Chapel called Think on These Things. And very often, uh, when we go through a message series or a sermon series, it's a study through a section of the Bible or an entire book or letter that's found in the scriptures, and we go through the whole thing. But for uh, the past couple weeks and the next couple weeks, we are focusing on one single verse. And it's a verse that's found in a New Testament letter that an early church leader named the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in a place called Philippi. And he was encouraging them on how to live their lives. And as he wrote the letter, he was writing from difficult circumstances. He was in a Roman prison cell, and he was writing to a group of people who were they themselves in very difficult circumstances. Uh, they were very poor. They had a lot of physical needs and hardship. And so they felt very keenly the pressures and the stresses of life. And you and I, we can relate maybe not to all of those things, but we can relate to what it feels like when our lives are under pressure, when things aren't going the way that we hoped that they would, when the world around us and the weight of circumstances and the weight of all of the things that we see and we experience feels like it's just so much. And in those moments, we have a way that we can respond. We have a choice that we can make. And just like we have that choice, the Apostle Paul, as he wrote to these early Christians, they had a choice as well. And the things that he encourages them to are not the things that you and I would expect. Because when circumstances get challenging for us, one of the first things that's easy for us to do is to want to give up or to complain or to make light of it or just to look at how hard things are. But instead what the Apostle Paul does is he focuses this group of people on the good. He tells them to rejoice and he says, I say it again, rejoice. Let the way that you live be known to everybody around you because the Lord is near. And then we get down to the verse that we've been focusing on. And it sounds like one of these verses that's just aspirational. You know, we should think good thoughts. We should have positive vibes. But it's so much deeper than that. And it's so much bigger. And if we will build our lives in the same place, that he encouraged his early listeners to do it. I believe we will see a different life and a different picture of how to live begin to emerge, one that is propelled forward by the power and the presence and the spirit of Jesus. And it won't just stop there. It will spread to the people around us and the world around us will sit up and they'll take notice because here is a group of people who's not doing it like everybody else does it. And so our verse is Philippians 4 and verse 8, and it goes like this. And if you want to do something really crazy, you could say this with me wherever you find yourself. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. There's eight words there. And as we read them, they kind of all run together. But as we go through the words, and that's really what we've been doing, is we discover a different meaning emerges around each of them. But there's a thread. There's a pattern that also begins to emerge. And so today, we find ourselves looking at whatever is lovely and whatever is admirable. You know, when you think of the word lovely, you think of the word pretty or attractive. You want to look at nice things. You want to look at pictures of nature. You want to look at sunsets. You want to look at things that inspire you and that are fun to look at. 
You know, most of us have pictures or paintings in our homes on the walls, and they're things that remind us of certain things. But this word actually means much more than that. Because the word lovely, as it was originally written in the Greek to the original audience, it's actually two different words. One of the words is the word toward, and the other is a certain type of the word love. And so when the Apostle Paul says, think about things that are lovely, he's not saying, go look at pretty pictures. Go look at things that inspire you and make you happy. He's saying, dwell, build your life on things that propel you towards love that push you in the direction of love. And so to think on that which is lovely is to think on things that that actually move us somewhere. They don't just inspire us mildly. They move us in a direction, and that direction is love. But here's the problem with this, is that it's not just this abstract thing that we feel. You know, we use the word love for so many different things. You know, I love baseball. This is my favorite time of the year to love baseball. Uh, Certain of us love certain kinds of food. We love chocolate in our house. Right now it's fall and some of you really love pumpkin spice and some of you don't. But we use this word casually in a way that the original audience who heard this would not have understood it. Because here's what's true about love and most of us know that, that love is not just a feeling. It's not just this thing that we feel, and now we're in love. And you know, sometimes you do feel something. I remember when I first met my wife, Grace, and we've now been married for more than 20 years, I felt a lot of things. But if the feelings are all there is, it never moves you in a direction. It never changes your priorities. It never changes how you use your time and your resources. It never changes the direction of your thoughts. Love becomes real when you do something about it. And here's where it gets truly deep and profound. Sometimes love is what you do even when you don't feel it. Sometimes love is a decision that you make. You know, some of you are new in relationships, or you're newly married, or you're getting into a relationship. I will tell you this, that there are times in any relationship, even the best one, where love is a decision that you make, and you pray that the feelings follow. You know, I heard a pastor officiate at a wedding one time, and he said something that that really stuck with me. You know, we think about the idea that love keeps marriage together. If you feel love, then you'll stay together. He said, actually, marriage keeps love together. The commitment that you've made keeps you in a spot together that allows you to continue to work out how to love each other. So sometimes we'll feel it, sometimes we won't, but the thing that matters, regardless of whether we feel it or not, is what we do about it next. And so here's the other thing with this word love, as the Apostle Paul writes it, as it's rendered originally. You know, we have one word for love, and we use it for everything, but the original audience, the Greek audience, or the language that they wrote in, had three different words for love. They had a word for romantic love. They had a word uh, for self-sacrificial love. Maybe some of you have heard the word agape. It's that kind of love. But there's a third word that's used here, and it's the word phileo. And it's like brotherly or sisterly love. And so it's easy to read this passage as, you know, think some nice thoughts, think about some nice things, or think even nice thoughts about God. But there's a much more linear, concrete, and I believe challenging thing 
that we're actually called to do here. So when you think on things that are lovely, a few weeks ago we looked at the fact that the word think is really like build your life on, dwell on, camp out there, decide that that's where you're going to set up shop. Think on the things that drive you towards love. Dwell on the places that put you in the direction of the right things. And that's not just the feelings of love, but it's the actions of love, and it's towards other people. And so when we think about whatever is lovely, it's whatever motivates us to orient our lives, our time, our energy, our resources in the direction of love for other people, to work out the actions of love. For the rest of our time, I want, to, I want to work out just a little bit what that means in another passage of Scripture that goes in the same direction. One of the other early church writers was a man named John. He was an apostle, and he wrote a letter that connects our faith in God to our everyday life. It starts out with who God is. It starts out with the relationship that we have with God because of Jesus Christ. But then it turns directions in the middle, and it says, because these things are true, because this is true for you, because the love of God has first been poured down into your life and into your heart, it's not just to stay there like in a bucket, but it's to be poured out in the lives of the people around you. And so we're going to read a little passage from the letter of 1 John, beginning at chapter 3 and verse 1. And John is writing, and he's saying kind of a version of what we've already just talked about in our original verse with the Apostle Paul. We're talking about what it means to receive love from God, but then to live it out in our lives in everyday ways. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The amazing thing about God's love, and this is for some of you right now as you listen or you watch this, is God's love has been lavished on you. It's not something you have to do to earn. It's not a standard you have to keep. This is an incredibly scandalous, wasteful thing that God has poured his grace and his mercy and his love down on us regardless of our performance, regardless of our best day or our worst day, regardless of whether we got it right or whether we screwed it completely up. The love of God continues to be poured down on us. It's lavished down on us. It's inexhaustible. You know, a bunch of years ago, I went with some friends uh, to, we have these things in New Jersey and the New York area that where I grew up, we didn't have them called rodizios. And what this is, is this is a Brazilian steakhouse. And some of you have been there and you've survived. But what it is, is you sit down and basically the short version of it is they just keep bringing you meat. They just keep bringing it out. And the first few times you come out, you're like, yes, meat. And some of you don't like meat. I'm very sorry. There's something out there for you as well, I'm sure. But they bring it out, and there's like, you know, pieces of filet mignon. They bring them out on swords and on skewers. And it's just this overwhelming kind of experience. <coughs> and what's amazing about it is they don't stop until you raise the white flag. They don't stop until you just say, you, you say, I, I give up. I cannot possibly handle any more meat. I thought I was there for all the meat that's in the world, but you have outdone me with the amount and the level and the diversity of meat that you have here. 
And I went out there, and those of you who have done this, you feel like your heart is maybe going to fall out of your chest. It's working a little bit harder. You know you've just knocked a few years off of your life. But that's what lavished looks like. It's inexhaustible. You can't run out. It keeps showing up again and again and again. And there's this thing that happens with us when we realize that there's something that we won't run out of. You know, imagine if I was sitting at that table with the people that I went there with, and they were bringing out the meat, and I was hoarding all the meat to myself because I wanted all the meat. How ridiculous would that be? It's ridiculous because the meat won't stop coming. And when it comes to the love of God, it's lavished on us. It's poured out over and over again, and the love of God won't stop coming, and we don't need to hold on to it for ourselves because it's being poured out in our lives, and at some point our lives overflow, and that love is poured out into the lives of others. That we would be called children of God. This isn't about our performance. It's about something God has called you and me. And so with this lavished love, and this fact that our relationship has been defined, not by us, but by God. It allows us to turn around and to face the brokenness and the difficulty of the world that we find ourselves in with a completely different mindset. One where we can give away and give away and say there's more for you and there's more for you because the love of God is inexhaustible. So see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we would be called children of God, and that is what we are. John goes on. He says, the reason the world does not know us is it didn't know him. And really what that means is the reason the world doesn't understand what this is about is because they don't understand who God is yet. The relationship you have upward directly impacts the relationships that you live outward. So that when we truly know God, when we've received the love that he's lavished on our hearts, and when we recognize the relationship that we're in is not because we've met a certain standard or performed a certain way, but we've simply received what God has offered to us through Jesus Christ. It changes how not only we live our lives, but how we live with everybody else in our lives. The relationship you have upward directly impacts the relationships that you live outward. And so we receive the love of God, but then it flows from our lives to the people around us. And some of those people are easy to love, but a lot of them are not because they disappoint us and relationships get broken. And as you know, as well as I know, life is anything but linear. But remember, what we're receiving from God is nothing like in the world. It will not run out. It will not run away from us. We will not exhaust its supply. And so because God is continually pouring that into us, we can turn even into those difficult places, and we can live differently. You know, in the Gospels, there were a couple religious officials who were asking Jesus a question, and they were seeking to kind of trip him up and test him. And they asked him, they said, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And he gave something that sounds like two different answers. But when you realize how he meant it, it's actually one. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then, 
love your neighbor as yourself. And really that second command is application. It's how we do the first. You know, when we think of loving God, it's easy for us to think, you know, well, I go to church and I give some money to the church and I sing some worship songs and maybe even I serve or I help people. And that's true. But the best way you demonstrate love for God is when you love your neighbor, you love the people around you as you have been loved, as God has loved you. And that's how we show this in the clearest and most direct way. John's not done. He goes on. He says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. You know, the life of faith is really a life of having hope. It's saying, even though the circumstances of my day, of my week, even of my year or this season, where they don't make sense, there is hope out in front of us. There's hope that there's purpose to the story that's being written in your life. But even at the end of that, there's hope that in the end of all things, at the end of our lives, or if Jesus comes back first, we have relationship with God and nothing can separate us from God that. You know, it's not this aspirational hope, like, I hope I lose 10 pounds. It's a hope that's more like a journey. It's something that we get on, and we know we will get to the end of the journey at some point, and it's the right journey. John takes what seems like a little bit of a turn, but I'll connect this back in in verse 4. He says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, but you know that he, and he's talking about Jesus, appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who can continue to sin has either seen him or known him. And this seems complex, and it seems a little difficult. John's not saying that when you're a Christian, you won't sin, because that directly contradicts some of the things he said earlier. Earlier in this letter, he said, you know, if we claim that we're without sin, we deceive ourselves. But it's saying that even when we do, there's a remedy in Christ. There's something that can wipe away our sin and our guilt and restore the relationship that God has named, that we are his children. You know, there's been tremendous damage done over the years by the idea that, you know, when we become Christians, the sinners suddenly are like the other people. One of the things that it's easy to do in church is to pray against the sin that's happening in the world around us or people who are sinners and we pray that God would bring the sinners to himself and what we subtly mean very often when we say that is the other people who do it differently than we do. The people who do the things that are really bad not like the things that we do. And one of the things that we always need to be reminded of is all have sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And when we understand that we are all under the same umbrella, except for Jesus, it changes how we see people around us. Because when we look at other people that way, we create this barrier between us. We create a barrier where we're on one level and they're on another level. And it makes it very hard to love 
in an honest and true way, in the way of Jesus. Now, what if we, the people who are Jesus' followers, what if we just decided to be concerned about our own sin, to recognize the places in our life where we still struggle and we still need the grace of God on a daily basis, and we just worried about that? And then when it came to the people around us, the people who don't know Jesus, who aren't even held to some of the same standards, that we just figured out how to show them the love of God in Jesus Christ. And with that, John issues kind of a warning tacked onto that. He says in verse 7, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he, and that's Jesus again, is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. And that doesn't mean we're without sin, but it means that we don't fall into the same patterns because we have a different power that lives within us. Because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. You know, when you receive the love of God, I believe it truly has the ability to break the bonds that hold us. The immense, lavish nature, it never runs out, it never gives up. All of the things that we would do to short-circuit that, to get our way, to consume, to take from others, all of the different ways that you and I would sin, the power of them can be broken when the love of God truly comes to live in our hearts. So I believe this isn't about whether we sin or not, but it's where we've set up shop, where we abide, where we're hanging out, what we're thinking on, like we've been talking about in the passage, where we've been dwelling. And for those of us who follow Jesus, that is a different source, and it's a different place. And then he gives us, and this is where we're going with this passage today, he gives us a picture of what that looks like, practically lived out in our lives. And verse 10, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. That's really strong language. What he's saying is the children of God, the ones whose identity is they're part of the family of God, it's very evident who they are because of how they live. And then he tells us, anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So the way this works itself out ultimately comes back to how we love. And not just the abstract feelings of love, but the actions of it. So loving God, it's not this abstract thing. It's how we love the people around us like our brothers and sisters in the very best sense because some of you have difficult relationships with your siblings. But the best version of that relationship and so much more. And how we do that, he says, literally shows which family we're in. So think just for a moment of the people around you who sin differently than you do that you can't possibly imagine would be in the family? What would change if you just began to see them 
Let's not discount what's happened or what they've done or what they're doing. But if you just for your sake began to look at them as a brother or a sister, not as an opponent or an adversary or as a threat, how would that change how you live and how would that change how you love? There's this quote by a pastor I follow named Kerry Newhoff. He said this, he said, Christian maturity, it's marked not by how much you know, it's marked by how much you love. So true maturity for those of us who are walking with Jesus isn't about how many Bible verses we know, how much Greek and Hebrew we can drop on people, how much time we spend going to church. It's marked by how well we love, having received the love of God that is lavished on our hearts, with the relationship being defined, not by our performance or our goodness or our badness, but because God has called us his children in Jesus Christ. And then we can live for something so much greater. Because think on these things. It's not what you do with your head. It's what you do with your life. Think about it this way. What's harder? Sitting through yet another Bible study or sermon. Some of you are sitting here saying, this is pretty hard at times, sitting here. Or practically, Daily, living out the way of Jesus, a giving, sacrificing, pouring out, even to the end, even when it costs us, even when we don't get what we deserve or what we want, kind of life, towards the people or the person that you don't think could possibly merit that. What would it look like if we built our lives there? And that brings us, as we begin to close to the second word. You're like, there's another word. Are we gonna sit here for as long in that? No, you're not. It's the word admirable or good report. Whatsoever things are lovely. Whatsoever things are admirable. These aren't two different things that we have to do. They're part of the same thing. They're two parts of a whole. This word that is used for admirable or good report in some of the older translations is a word that shows up precisely once in the entire scriptures, and it's right here in this spot. And there's an obvious meaning to it. It means highly regarded, gracious, well thought of, or spoken of favorably. And we understand that meaning. But this word also has a second meaning. Because in the surrounding pagan culture that the early Christians lived in, this Greek word was also used to define the moment of silence that happened before a sacrifice. You know, in the ancient, the ancient pagan temple rituals, there'd be all kinds of sacrifices and offerings that were offered to the gods. And before that offering or that sacrifice or that act of worship was made, there was this moment of holy silence. And the same word that's used for good report was used to define that holy, silent moment. And the idea is that whatever was spoken into that moment or offered into that moment was what the gods would hear. You know, last week, if you were with us, we talked about the fact that the followers of Jesus, our very lives are our act of worship. It's not our songs it's not our actions. It's not our offerings of our money or our time. It's not the good things that we think or we say. It's our entire lives, that our lives are like that offering. They're poured out as an act of worship to God. And think about just a moment, like 
If the person that you respected or you were in awe of, you thought of uh, like the most favorably, they're like the top person in your world that you're inspired by or you think is the most famous or the most important or the most powerful, if they were going to show up at your house, you would do everything you could to bring your very best to that moment. The idea of holy silence, of this moment before a sacrifice is made. It's the second half of the first idea because this is about how we worship God. When we build our lives, when we dwell on whatever is lovely, whatever drives us toward love, and not just the feelings of love, but the actions of love, and not just the feelings and the actions of love, but the feelings and the actions of love for other people, we set ourselves up for that sacrifice, for that moment. This is about how we worship. Are we giving ourselves as a sacrifice? Just like we saw last week, just like we see here, so that others can receive it. Now, if you paused in that moment of holy silence and you looked at the sacrifice of your life, you looked down at what you're offering to God, offering to the people around you, what does it look like really when it comes to loving others, especially the difficult others or the others you don't think deserve it? What does that look like? Because how we do that is the sacrifice that matters. Remember, you have received and continue to receive the love of God. And it's not one and done. It's lavished on you continually. You know, I have two little boys and they are just the joy of my life. And I love being their dad. And I try to tell them every chance I get how much I love them. And sometimes they do great and they, they behave well and they, they don't act out and they don't fight with each other. And I tell them I love them. And sometimes it's much more difficult. And I still in those moments try to tell them that I love them. But what's interesting is sometimes one will get just a little bit jealous of the other. And as a father, I sit there, and it's kind of funny in a way, but it also breaks my heart because they don't need to fight each other for my love. They have all of it all the time. And they don't need to pull themselves up on a standard. I love when they do good things, but that's not what makes me love them. And me as an imperfect parent, and I am far from perfect as a parent, that experience shows me just a taste of what God's love is like for me and what it's like for you and what it's like for us. We don't have to fight with each other to get it. It will not run out. And if we'll just receive it, it will begin to change every area of our lives. But the thing it will change the most is when we turn and we look at the others and even we look at the difficult people in the world who feel like they're taking something from us. But we realize because God is pouring his love out and he's pouring his love out and he will never stop that there's so much to go around that we can continue to give that away even when it's not understood even when it's not appreciated even when it's not reciprocated 
because God continues to pour his love into us. Whatsoever, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are admirable, in that moment of holy silence, as you offer your life to God, think on these things. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you personally in my life that your love, it does not run out, it does not run off, it does not give up. It continually is poured out like a fountain that has levels, and the first one fills out, and then the, the waters spill out into the second, and then they spill out into the next, and they spill out, and they just continue to cascade. Would our lives receive your love? Would it change our hearts? Would it transform how we understand ourselves? We are the very children of God if we are in Christ, and that's not something we achieved. It's something that you gave us because of your grace, and you've adopted us into your family. And so there's no more lack. And now we can turn to a world, a challenging world, a broken world, a world that beckons us to live for so many different things, to live in anxiety and in fear, to live for what we can hold on to and what we can protect. But instead, you call us to a higher way, a way where we can give a love that points back to you so that people would know that you are God and that you have love for them as well. Make this personal for us. Bring a name or a face to mind where we, in that moment of holy silence, can offer a sacrifice of our lives. And we pray by the power of your spirit, you give us the strength to do it. You give us the wisdom to see where we need to walk and the courage to keep going. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.